All right, we are in Genesis chapter 12. Let me move a couple of things and we'll get started. If you're having a hard time finding it, it's likely because you've turned past it. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so you can find it there conveniently, really close to the front cover. We are continuing our identity series today, and we're in the third week of it, and so you'll recognize the, the identity or how we articulate it here at Ridgecrest is that we exist to raise up Christ followers who are growing in their faith, serving in their giftedness, and going forth to boldly proclaim the gospel. That's, that's what we're about. That's that really our end goal is to raise up people who love and follow Jesus Christ and who serve him in the gifts that he gave them in salvation and that they live a life as an extension of the gospel. And over the next three weeks, I'm going to have the, the joy of, of really laying out what it is to go forward in the gospel, but as we focus on, on doing so locally. And then uh, Dr. Matt Queen will come in and share with us on the 25th about how to live a life of, of personal evangelism. But this morning, I really, I wanted us to look at Genesis chapter 12, really the last part of 11 and rolling into 12, to try and get a picture of what is the heart of the God that we serve. You see, I can remember growing up, and uh, as many of you know, I, I lived overseas for 11 years, moved over when I was three, came back when I was 14. And because we were in Western Europe, we had uh, occasion frequently to hear from missionaries who were serving in Africa, who were serving in India. And, and so really, for me, what this looked like was being you know, seven, eight, nine years old and hearing that carousel, click, 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 click. If, if, if you've been there, you can remember that. It always smells a little bit musty. And they're like, here's a mud hut. Here's another mud hut. Here's me in front of my neighbor's mud hut. And so if you were to ask me as an eight, nine-year-old child, Matt, what is missions all about? I'd say it's going somewhere nobody's ever heard of and living in a mud hut. Going somewhere nobody's ever heard of and living in a mud hut. Oh, of course, and then coming back and asking people for money and showing them pictures of your mud hut. Always exterior, never interior. And so that, that did not create in me a real desire to go and do missions. I mean, like no eight or nine-year-old kid, you go to him, you're like, you want to go to the movies? You want to go to Six Flags? Or you want to go live in a mud hut? They're like, oh, let me see. I don't know. It's a good question. And so for me, like seeing this, I, for what it was for me, it was, it was a killer of my Sunday night. Because these things could never happen in the Sunday morning service. And so for me, like the ebb and flow of church attendance was Sunday morning. He's going to go. He's going to talk over my head. I'm not going to get it. And then we're going to have lunch, hopefully out and not in, right? And so, but, but the idea of missions was incredibly boring. It was something I didn't care any about, anything about. It's something I saw as exceptional or extraordinary, because that's what these people were. They were exceptionally extraordinary. They were certainly out of the ordinary. I mean, just people that, uh, kind of the, the lingo that missionaries use, they'll say missionary for a season or missionary for a reason. These people were definitely missionaries for a reason. They couldn't fit in in the rest of Western society. And so they went and they lived in mud huts. And so around about the time that, that I was, I guess, surrendering and going into ministry, I laid out this deal with God. It's, it's, the joke has it, the punchline's coming. But. And so I laid out this deal with God. I said, hey, this is awesome, man. I, I want to serve you, like, you know, blank check, whatever you'll have. Uh, just, just notice, you know, don't overdraw this, overdraw this account because I'm never going to be a missionary. And I'm never going to work with junior high school students. <laughs> just, just FYI, you should know that before you call me. And so 
it, it's almost like you could hear the heavens roll this chortling laughter echoing and booming. I'm like, what's that thunder? Is that you, God? And so two weeks later, I found myself leading a junior high guidance discipleship group, and I'm just like, that's not funny. Like, I don't, I don't have this gift. They're not liking what I'm having to say, and, and God's just like, ha, ha, ha. Like, God, really? That's not a friendly laugh. Come on now. And so I found myself in that and really pouring in and investing in these guys, but I'm still holding out hope, recognizing, look, God, I gave 11 years of my life living abroad. Like, you don't need to take me back over there. And God, again, with that chortling, you know, real, real deep belly laugh, he comes out, and, and, and lo and behold, when I was in college, I found myself living for three months uh, in Budapest, serving as a missionary. But still, it was the thought that, oh, God, that's okay. This is just, you know, it's a, it's a short period of time. It's just me. I'm just hanging out and having a good time. And then when I graduated from seminary, God had laid it on my heart and on Valerie's heart to go and to serve for, for two more years and to live in Prague. So we lived in a city that has less than 1% evangelical Christians. And so when you walk up and you talk to anybody and you say, what do you believe about God? And, and they would say something like this, well, God is a joke. Well, you know that everybody here in this country, we're all atheists. And so he put me in this place where, where everybody thought what I did was incredibly ridiculous and didn't want anything to do with me. And that's, that's where he placed us. That's where he had us. And God began to grow in my heart and had been working on my heart since I watched those carousel pictures of missionaries living in a mud hut saying, you don't understand missions. If you don't have this inborn desire to go to the nations, then you're completely missing the heart of God. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, catching up with the heart of God, recognizing that, that missions is not something that's a tack on to the end of Matthew. Like you get into Matthew 28 and all of a sudden you're like, oh, God wants people to be saved. It's something inborn to the heart of God. Read with me, starting in Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 27. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Now Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now key into this, verse 30. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. For those of you who don't know what barren means. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So this is what you've got. You've got this, this nuclear family. You've got <clears throat> grandfather Terah who's living in Ur of the Chaldeans. And, and what we don't see from this account is that somehow God lays it upon this family's heart to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and, go, and to go into Canaan. And so they pack up and they, they get all their family, they get all their possessions. And so you've got this, this band of brothers rolling on down the road and they end up in Haran. And so they go to this new city, and, and for whatever reason, we're not informed, they set up life there. They begin to live there, and Terah, as the patriarch of his family, sets up camp in this, in this place, and we find out that he does not continue to go on to Canaan. And so he sets up life in this place, and, and so the major characters in our story are Abram and Sarai, and then, of course, Abram's nephew Lot. Now, we're given this incidental detail 
that Sarai is, is barren. And that's going to become important for us here in a moment. But, but what I want you to recognize is Abram is just an ordinary man. I think the, the backstory of Abram to this point is nothing. Is nothing. In fact, when, the, when he, his name first opens up, he's just traveling along with his father. He's an ordinary person from an ordinary town. In fact, he's, he's probably the original pagan convert, if you want to look at him in this context. And God catches a hold of this ordinary man's heart, and he prepares to do something incredibly extraordinary with him on the basis of Abram's obedience to God. And that's going to become important for us. Now, so we've got this family, and, and they're living in Haran, this, this family, and, and the patriarch dies. And then in 12.1, this is what we read. Now the Lord said to Abram. And so in the midst of this situation, his father has died, he's in this new city, and God comes to him, and the Lord God said something to him. Now this is, this is pretty extravagant, isn't it? This is pretty amazing that God would come and speak, but we recognize that God has spoken to us in his scriptures, and he continues to speak. But here, he speaks to Abram in the flesh, and he says, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. And so, just, just so we get this, he's calling him to leave, to abandon everything he knows, everything that's incredibly familiar. And so it's not that he just goes to Abram and says, Abram, look, I want you to pack up. I want you to go on a short trip. Abram says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go on a short trip. But God, here's a caveat. I don't want to leave my this. I don't want to leave my that. And, and I want to take my pillow because, you know, I just can't sleep on anything other than that styrofoam thing. In fact, God comes to him and look at the totality of the sacrifice that he calls him to. Look at the totality of the sacrifice. He says, leave your country. Leave everything familiar that you know around you. Your country, the system of government, the streets that you know, leave that. Leave your kindred. Leave your cousins. Leave your neighbors. Leave the people around you that know you, that, that support you. Leave this support system. Leave it. Go. And then he says, leave your father's household. Now, we're given an indication that, yes, he had already left from Ur of the Chaldeans, and that's where this family comes from, but they'd been in Haran long enough to set up shop, and so people knew them in the marketplace. This was their home. Now, as somebody that has only ever lived, uh, or the longest I've ever lived anywhere is four years, and I've only done that once, and it's from age three to seven, so that doesn't really count, does it? And so, like, I recognize what it is to move about every three years. And then sometimes I know what it is to move every few months. When I was in the second grade, we moved three times. I went to three different schools. I had three different sets of friends. Or I had three different sets of people that wouldn't be my friend, however you want to look at it. But each one of those places that we found ourselves in, we set up home. We set up home. And you know how that is. When you, if you've ever moved and you move into a new place and you begin to do these things, you're unpacking boxes, but it's something about having pictures on the wall, having your sheets on the bed, and maybe that first meal. You kind of set in. You say, I think this place could be home. And it's hard to leave home. It's hard to leave that familiarity. It's hard to, to leave that, that the door that just doesn't quite close. It's hard to leave that house that you can feel the sag in the foundation when you walk downhill from the kitchen to the living room. But it's home. 
You know not to trip on that carpet. It's been needing to be fixed for six months, but it's home. If somebody fixed it, I wouldn't do this when I got out of bed. But it's home. Abram is called to leave everything familiar, his country, his kindred, and his home. God goes to him, and he doesn't set up this system of rationale of arguing with him. Abram, I've got something better for you. I've got something amazing for you. No, the first commandment is to go. He says, go. And look where he told him to go. This is pretty amazing. Go to the land that I will show you. The command to go precedes the information to where. The call to go precedes the information to where. And so he calls Abram to the willingness to be ready to leave way before he ever tells him where he's going to be going to. And this is an amazing thing. This is a demonstration of the faithful response of Abraham as demonstrated in his obedience to God. Will he go? Look what God says to him next, verse 2. He calls him to go. He says, I'm going to show you where you're going to go to. And then he says, and I will make you a, what? A great nation. Now, there's a problem for us. If you were paying attention as we read through chapter 11, as I not so subtly directed your attention to verse 30, you found out that Sarai was barren. And so she's, she's about 65 years old at this point. She's about 65 years old at this point. She's roughly a decade younger than Abram. And so she's 65 years young, and, and she's barren. She's not had any children. And what the first promise that God gives to Abram out of the box is, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, now, admittedly, I know very little about nation building. I know very little about the League of Nations. I know very little about the model, United Nations, or the real thing. But as, as an amateur expert on nations, I can tell you that it takes more than two people to be a great nation. Like, so my wife and I, we're expecting our third child sometime in the next three to four weeks or she would say two to four weeks. And, and when we have this family of five, we're still not yet, what, a great nation. It takes, I'm guessing, more than five, you know, up to millions to be a great nation. And so think about the level of faith demonstrated on behalf of Abram that he has to exercise on the basis of this promise of God. It's just you and your wife. It's just you and her for 65 years. You know, she's been living for however long they've been married. They've been unable to have children. And now here God goes, and he tells him to go. And the first promise he gives smacks right in the face of the predicament of their life. But God, we have no children. See, the hallmark of God's promise to Abram isn't even something that is revealed in his obedience. It's something that's not fully revealed until much, much later in his life. Fully 25 years later in his life, God reiterates this promise again to him of, of a birth of a child. So God comes to him, and probably the greatest hurt in Abram's life, God issues a promise in direct correlation to that. He said, I'll make you a great nation. Then he comes to him and he says, I will bless you and I will make your name great. So what he's telling him, I'm going to give you uh, children. I'm going to give you a large family. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you famous so that when people say your name, it will be a blessing so that people will know your name. So that people hear of Abram, they'll find it synonymous with blessing. Now the, the interesting thing about this is in this 
commitment of God to make his name great, the only other place thus far in the book of Genesis we found about someone's name being great is in the midst of the struggle of humanity trying to build the Tower of Babel. And so all of early humanity gathered together and they set out and they were going to build this tower. And what we discover in the midst of their building this tower is this. In verse 4, they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And look, look what? Let us make a name for ourselves. Their desire was for fame. Their desire was for notoriety. Their desire was to do something impressive so that people might look at them and behold. And God frustrates their efforts. But here we find this man, completely unassuming, completely ordinary, nothing special about him. And God goes to him and says, I will bless you, and I will make your name great. He's a nobody from nowhere. And God's going to take him and multiply his descendants. God's going to take him and make his name great. But look at this, so that you will be a blessing. All of the blessings that go to Abram are so that he might be a blessing to those that he encounters. What a challenge for us, right? When you think about all the things that God has given you, all the ways that he's blessed your family, and we recognize that by extension, God has blessed some of us. He has given some of us tremendous wealth, tremendous intellects, and he's done that not so that people will look at you and celebrate you. And that's what our society calls us to, like be celebrated. Let people celebrate you. Let people rejoice in you. Let people build you up. But the model of scripture and what we see here clearly demonstrated before Abram is that I will bless you. I'll make you a great nation and I'll make your name great. Why? So that with this blessing that you might turn around and bless others. The reason God has given us so many blessings in our lives is not so that we could jealously hold on to them, but so that we could be busy divesting ourselves of them and spreading them around so that they might point to his great fame and his ability. Abram wasn't looking to hoard the blessings of God, but the blessings of God were given to him so that he might turn and give them to yet still others. Look what God goes on to say, verse three. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. God's got Abram's back, he's looking out for him. And so effectively he goes in and he says, look, Abram, whenever people come in and they bless you and they do good on your account, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to bless them. So when people do good things to you, I'm going to do good things to them. Conversely, when people come in and they malign you, when people come in and they speak bad things about you and they seek to damage and destroy you, I'm going to bring it. And so what God is effectively telling him is, I have your back for good and for bad. You are solidly, wholly taken care of. This is the promise that God makes to Abram. Now look at this. There's something particular that we have to look at here in the last half of verse 3. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to dishonor those who dishonor you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God takes one insignificant family and he brings to bear the full blessing of God upon this family in his plan, in his pattern, is that his blessings might start with this one family and spill over into everybody that they come into contact with. What a plan for evangelism. What a plan for reaching the nations. 
that God would come into one family and he would say, all of my blessings are going to be poured out on you, and this is why. So that you would take those blessings that I'm given and you would pour them out onto everybody you come into contact with. This is how it is, fully laid out for Abram. God comes to him and says, go. He says, leave everything you know, and this is what life will be like for you. No, this isn't what God is doing. It's not like he's holding it out and saying, I'm going to give you all this stuff so you do this. The blessings of God come to Abram on the basis of his obedience to God. He had faith in God that those things which we promised to him, God would bring to bear. Now, he had to wait on the promise of childhood for over a quarter century. So for over a quarter century, he, he rested and trusted by faith in God. And that continued obedience before God is when the blessings of God continue to roll out in Abram's life. So look at this. God comes to him in the middle of this, just like he comes to each and every one of us, and he calls us to go forward with the gospel. Recognize that for every person in this room that is born again, that the spirit of God resides in you, that God has saved you, he's transferred you from darkness to light, You have confessed your sins. He has forgiven you. You have repented. He has called you into the new life for each and every one of us. There's a call to obedience. There's a call to obedience. All the blessings of God are richly bestowed upon you in the person of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, salvation, belief. And he calls on you to demonstrate that faith through radical obedience to him. When God says, go to us in salvation, our question isn't, oh, but God, couldn't you use somebody else? Our question to God is, oh, God, where would you call me? When might I be able to go? The pattern of Abram's life calls us all to radical obedience, recognizing at the heart of God is his desire that he might be known in the nations and worshiped gloriously. Verse 4. So Abram went... Look at this obedience. It says, Abram went as the Lord had, what, told him. And Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. It is never too late to find another career as a missionary for God. Amen? Some of you husbands said, amen, your wives, you're going to have to talk to her later. But hey, it's never too late if God lays it on your heart to go, to go and to serve and to follow him. Amen? Come on now. You're here to tell me that if God comes before you and he says to get up and go, to quit your job and to go to the nations, you're going to say, no, not me. I got a cousin, though. He's great. I I believe he was a preacher at one point before he went to prison. But hey, hey, don't let that steer you off. If God comes before you and God says you need to go, you're not going to say amen? That was the wrong time to amen because remember, it was the negative. You're confused. Hey, hey. If, uh, if God stands before you and calls you to go, there is only response for you is to give a hearty amen and to hit the road and to follow the pattern and the plan of Abram and to let these details work themselves out because you would be faithful to demonstrate obedience and radically so before God. So Abram was 75 years old. He had lived a good and full life. He had laid down roots. He was likely a pillar of the community and God called him to go and he went. And Abram took Sarai's wife and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. This is the first trip of a ragtag crew. I mean, so this isn't just a couple of people. This is likely a couple hundred people rolling down the road, kicking up dust, 
rolling from place to place. God called them to go, and Abraham went to the clan and, and said, y'all, we're going. We're going. The, the commandment that God gave us in Ur, we stopped in Haran. Our father has died, and now we will continue to go. We will continue to go, and we will be faithful to demonstrate obedience before God. Well, look what's next. There's a curious line. And the people that they had acquired in Haran. Now, if you're reading this quickly, you read over this, and probably what keys in your mind is the idea of slavery. And so Abram had acquired, he had bought slaves, but, but the way that the Hebrew is constructed here gives us an impression that this has nothing to do with slavery. What he's talking about here aren't the people that he had acquired, they're not, not these people that he'd gathered together with some type of finance. What he's talking about here are people that he had shared this proto-gospel with. These people that he had gone to and he had told them about this creator God, how he's decidedly different than all the pagan gods that they worshipped. And so he had gone to them, Abram had gone to them, he had laid out the heart of God before them, and they had believed. They believed to the point that when Abram said, come on guys, we're going, they jumped up and they followed with him. So when he writes in this, and he says all the people that he had acquired, it gives us the impression that the whole time that Abram was in Haran, he is busy knocking on doors and telling people about the great, glorious creator God that he knows that is decidedly different against everything that they know, observe, and see. Abram didn't wait for God to call him to foreign soil to stir in his heart a passion for evangelism. Abram didn't wait to be on a foreign mission trip in a distant city where nobody knows you. He was beating on the doors of his neighbors. He was walking the streets of his neighborhood. He was rubbing into people that he saw in the marketplace. Abram took God seriously. And he took his information about God, his knowledge of God, to bind on his heart this desire to not be a missionary in a foreign context, but to be a missionary each and every day. This is what he calls us to. He calls us to radical obedience, not on a foreign field, but each and every day that we draw breath. He calls us to radical obedience in following him and communicating to others about the goodness of our God, not when it's comfortable, not when there's no fear of reprisal, but each and every moment, and especially when it costs us something. Abram gives us this beautiful picture, not of what it is to leave one place and go and be faithful somewhere else, but what it is to live a life of demonstrated faithfulness throughout. From the very beginning of the moment when God calls and lays himself upon our heart until he calls us home to glory. Amen? What we see here is that Abram had a heart fully owned by God. It is not that Abram had an exclusive claim to God, but that God had an exclusive claim on Abram. We recognize that that same God has an exclusive claim on our hearts. That he owns us and he has purchased us with the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Now look what it says. They got the people that he had acquired in Haran, all those that he would shared about this creator God with, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, there were Canaanites in the land. So we recognize that when he goes there, God has not cleared everybody out in front of his path. God has not gone and systematically removed all of the obstacles, all of the things that would cost Abram something. In fact, the land is inhabited with people that are decidedly antagonistic towards this creator God. He is... 
He has left in the land of people who want nothing more than the destruction, the downfall of Abram and all those that he travels with. And so this, this incidental piece of information should let us know that this is not an easy thing that he's called Abram to. In fact, the first place that Abram goes and what we read here is that God appeared to him in verse 7. And he says, to you and your offspring I will give this land, that this place, that the Oaks of Morah is a place where the Canaanite uh, priests would come and they would communicate with people about how they needed to offer sacrifices to their God. And so Abram walks in and he finds himself beneath this tree, beneath this place of religious significance for the Canaanite sect and for pagan worship, and he finds himself in this place, this pulpit of paganism, and what does he do? God, the creator God, shows up and he calls him and he says, everything you see around you. And as Abram peers out, he sees Canaanites, he sees pagan worship, he sees people that live for his destruction. And this is what God says, everything you see I'm going to give to you and to your offspring. And what does Abram do? On the basis of the faithfulness of God, in the midst of that, he doesn't say, no God, no God, could you send me some armies? Like, could you just hook a brother up? Could you help me out? Because I gotta, I gotta tell you, man, I look out, I don't have the best vision, I'm 75 years old, but when I look out, I see all kinds of people that don't like me, God. God, you see those people? It's not what he does. He's, he's, he's not seeing with his eyes, he's seeing with spiritual vision, he sees what God has called him to see, and in the basis of this, what does he do? He sets up an altar and he sacrifices. On the basis of the renewed vision of God to Abram, he worships God in the most implausible of places. The heart of pagan worship. This pulpit for paganism, Abram stands in the middle of it and he worships God. He worships him in the place where it could cost him the most. And this is the pattern that he lays down over and over again. And so he leaves there. And he begins to head out. And in verse 8 it says, He moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his scent pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And look what it says, and called upon the name of the Lord. Now Martin Luther, when he's going through and he's translating the Hebrew, this is what, the way Martin Luther translated it. And there he preached God. Abram comes in, and he's got these two large cities. He's on a hill between them. And he's got Bethel on one side and Ai on the other. You know, all of the worship of the god El, the highest in the, in, the, in the Canaanite pantheon, is worshipped in Bethel. And so Abram puts himself right in between these two, and he's got these hundreds of followers below him. And what he does is he sets up in that place where he can view pagan worship on his left and pagan worship on his right. And he builds an altar, he sacrifices to God, and he preaches God to those people. The boldness of Abram was not to be deterred by those things he saw around him. The boldness of Abram solely rested upon the solemn promises of God. What? To bless him. To make, his, make him a great nation. To make his name great. To bless those who bless him. To curse those who curse him. Abram trusted on God and his word. Because he didn't have anything else to trust on. What God calls us to is the same faithfulness that Abraham demonstrated, that Abram demonstrated. See, the Apostle Paul writing on this and, and seeking to help to, to bring it to our minds wrote these words in Galatians chapter 3. He says, and starting in verse 7, he says, know, know then that it was those of faith who were sons of Abraham. 
So you, you recognize that Abraham goes up and he is the patriarch, the father of Judaism. And so Christ dies and there's this schism between Jewish background believers and pagan believers. And, and some of the Jewish background believers wanted the Christians to come in and to believe certain things. Or they wanted the Christians to believe that, that the Jewish background believers had a, a more direct line to God. And so this is what it says. It says, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, we recognize there's no distinction in the gospel that we are all one before Christ. And Christ's death brings us in to the family of Abram. You see, the full promise of Abram isn't fully realized with the birth of Isaac. It's not fully realized with the birth of Jacob. It's not fully realized with the establishment of the 12 tribes. The promise that God made to Abram is only fully realized in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and him ascended at the right hand of the Father. Because in the ascension of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, he opens the door and he fully completes what Abram was unable to complete. Just as Abram was to go out and to be a blessing to all those that he came into contact with and all the families of the earth will be blessed, so too the blood of Jesus Christ brings tremendous blessing on everyone that comes into contact with it. For everyone who confesses the name of Jesus, who comes to faith in Jesus, they receive a tremendous blessing. It's not the the passing blessing of fertility or fame, but it is the eternal blessing of forgiveness. It is the eternal blessing of the nearness of God, and it is the eternal blessing of salvation. Friends, this is what God calls us to. In this month, as we're focusing upon our local ministries, we recognize that Abram gives us a great pattern for what it is to be obedient to God, that God issues the, the call to leave and to we go and we follow him each one of us, each person in this room, maybe you're not informed about this, but if you're a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, then God has called you to go. If you're a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, then God owns you by virtue of his son's atoning blood in your life. There's nothing you did to earn that. Jesus took the, the pain and, the, and the, the punishment of God. He took the suffering for you that was rightly to come to you, and he owns you by the seal of his blood. And he calls you to move forward in faith and radical obedience. And so for some of us, that's going to be a hard call. As we continue to struggle and walk out, God, what exactly are you calling me to? But we see in Abram that it's not always a call to go and serve. Some of you just took a big sigh. Oh, oh man, it's not me. I don't have to go live in a mud hut. He made that sound so terrible. In fact, for the vast majority of us, it's not a call to go and to live on a foreign in a foreign land, on foreign soil. But for all of us, it's a call to be faithful here in Greenville, Texas. It's a call to be faithful in Dallas, Texas. It's a call to be faithful at the neighborhood Walmart or Aldi when it's open. It's a call to be faithful at Chili's. It's a call to be faithful at Tamales. It's a call to be faithful at L3. It's a call to be faithful at the unemployment line. It's a call to be faithful at Fish. It's a call to be faithful each and every place that he takes you to. The pattern we see of Abram 
is of preparedness meeting the call of God. He was already busy being faithful in the situation that God has placed him in. Some of you have access to people that I could never run into. Some of you, that's your spouse. Your spouse is not a believer. Your children are not believers. God has placed you in their lives so that you might have an impact on them for the gospel. For others of you, it's your place of work. It's your place of service in the community. Recognize that this job or this place you slave away that you dread going to or this committee that you're on that you just hate being there, you are a light for the gospel in that place. Would you be faithful? Would you let the light of the gospel shine out from you? Would that we would follow the pattern of Abram and be responsive and obedient to the call of God upon our lives. The difference God could make, the revival he would bring if his people would live the difference that Jesus makes in their lives. Would you pray with me? God, we just thank you so much this morning for the opportunity we've had to study your word. God, you are so good to us. God, we pray for those who have yet to to surrender their life to you. God, you're not calling on us to be obedient prior to coming to know you, but it is in knowing you that we are called to sacrifice all and to follow. So God, we pray for those who have yet to surrender their lives to you. They're struggling to be good enough, to be right enough, to be righteous enough, to be clean enough to come to you. God, the pattern of Abram's life is just a, it's just a nobody from nowhere. We know nothing of his backstory. We only know the story of his life transformed moving forward. God, that that would be the case of, of someone in our midst or one of the other churches of our community today. So we pray for the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ, that we would see sinners saved, that we would see men and women and children redeemed, God, that you would call them to a life of faithfulness. Father, I pray for this local body, for those that have already been united to you in faith. God, that you would awaken their hearts to the commitment that they have made before you. God, that you would awaken their hearts to obedience. God, not that you're calling us to something exceptional, but you're calling us just to live out what it is to be a Christian in various contexts. So God, as we turn our heart once again in song and in worship, pray that you would just continue to help these things to move in our hearts, to stir in our minds, that you would stir us up to faithfulness. God, I thank you that you have already prepared for us beforehand good works, God. Cause us now to walk in them. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.